on, which means I'm on. Good evening. Oh, that's not very good, to be honest with you. Good evening. Oh, that's much better. Thank you for being here tonight. Do you realize how few churches have Sunday night services anymore? I grew up in Southern California, and all the churches had Sunday night services. Worked in Wichita, we had Sunday night service. New Philadelphia, Ohio, we had Sunday night service. Started church in Westerville back in 76, had Sunday night service. What happened? It's interesting, driving out here, I probably passed probably six churches, probably coming. This morning, most of the parking lots were fairly full. Tonight I came by, not a car in sight in any of them. So I commend you for being here tonight. I commend you for uh, continuing with your Sunday night services. And I know a lot of churches have gone to small groups and so forth, and that's fine, that's all right. Would you take your Bibles, I hope you brought a Bible with you, and turn to Acts chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, all right? Acts chapter 12, Genesis, Exodus, Acts. (laughs) Acts chapter 12. Now, Pastor, I should have asked this before, and I apologize. I should have asked for permission. Can I make an announcement tonight? Is that, is that all right? All right. Here's my announcement. Everybody listen. Everybody look up. Here's my announcement. You ready? God is in control. That's my announcement. God is in control, and I want you to see that. We're going to go through the entire chapter tonight. You have to understand I'm a Baptist preacher. If we're going to go through an entire chapter, we may be here till midnight. No, seriously, I want to watch the 11 o'clock news. So in Acts chapter 12, in order to understand the context, we have to understand what's going on with the church in Jerusalem by the time we get to Acts chapter 12. I think most people would assume that in Acts chapter 12, the church in Jerusalem is still a church of thousands of people. There was the day of Pentecost, 3,000, and that was the men, and then there were women and so forth. It was a church of thousands of people, and I think most would assume that in Acts chapter 12, what we're going to read is about a church that is literally a megachurch. But that's not true. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 12 and go back to Acts chapter 8, would you? Just quickly, just turn back a couple of pages and go to Acts chapter 8. Got it? Verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking of Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. You ready? And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Because of the great persecution, by the time we come to Acts chapter 12, the church in Jerusalem is not a church of thousands. It's probably not a church of hundreds. It is more likely that it is now a church of dozens. You see, the church 
in Jerusalem only had two enemies, that's all. The Jewish religion, which happened to be the most powerful religious organization in that entire region of the world. Oh, and then their other enemy was the Roman Empire, which just happened to be the most powerful political empire on planet Earth at that time. Now, I guess there was only one good thing. Rome and the Jews hated each other. But, remember the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? And the only thing that brought Rome and the Jews together was their common hatred of the Christians. And so that's about the only thing they could agree on. We hate these followers of this guy named Jesus and the Romans and the Jews both wanted to wipe out the early church. And that's why I want you to know God is in control. And here's the first point, and we find it in verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 12. We'll read it in a moment, but here's the first point if you're taking notes. God is in control even when I suffer. God is in control even when I suffer. Look at this, verses 1 to 5. Now about that time, pardon me, now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, you see, this was kind of an experiment. Herod is in a dangerous dance with the Jews. He doesn't like them. He wished they would just go away, but they were too far, too high in number in Israel and in Jerusalem that he had to find a way to coexist with them. And so he does a little experiment. I hate the Christians. I think you do as well. So he takes James, the brother of John, kills him, cuts off his head. And verse 3, And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. He saw that the Jews liked that they took James, the brother of John, and killed him. And Herod thought, okay, I'm not going to mess around anymore. I'm going right for the head. I'm going for the big guy. I'm going after Peter, the spokesperson for the church. I'm going to destroy this thing from the top down. I'm going to get rid of the church. So he proceeds further to take Peter also. Verse 4, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers. Our little math tonight, a quaternion was four. So if there were four quaternions, how many soldiers were guarding Peter? You are so smart. So there, listen, these were not just any soldiers. This was Herod's prize prisoner. And I'm absolutely positive he would not allow just your ordinary prison guard to guard his prize prisoner. These were probably battle-hardened soldiers, and there are 16 of them to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison 
but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Now note that very carefully in verse 5. What are they doing down at the church? They're having a prayer meeting. There will be a quiz later. Okay? They were praying for him. God is in control even when I suffer. I made reference to it this morning. I think one of the most dangerous heresies that is being presented to the church today is this heresy that says, if you serve God, if you honor God, if you have enough faith, you'll never suffer. You'll never have problems. You'll never have difficulties. You'll never get sick. Your kids won't get sick. You will lead this wonderful, trouble-free life. If you just have enough faith... If you just say the right words, words of faith, and of course you have to send in a seed offering to the guy on TV. You know, you send him 10, God will give you 100. I never understood that. If these TV evangelists really believe that, you know, give God 10, he'll give you 100. I never understood why the evangelist doesn't spend me, send me 10 so that God would give him 100. I guess it only works in one direction. I think this is one of the most dangerous heresies perpetrated on the church. And even if we don't listen to the guys on TV, we sometimes mistakenly think, I'll be exempt from suffering if I'm just really, really, really sincere. If I just pray harder, if I, if I just read my Bible more, I won't suffer. Or if we go through a period of suffering, we think, well, it's just because I haven't prayed enough and I haven't read my Bible enough. My friend, you are not exempt from suffering simply because of your sincerity. Sometimes we think that we're exempt from, or from suffering because of our service. Well, I'm suffering because I'm not doing enough for God. If I was just doing more for God, then I wouldn't suffer. God is trying to tell me that I'm just a slacker. And if I would just teach a Sunday school class or a WANA class, or if I'd go door-to-door -door evangelism or whatever, if I just got more involved in service, I won't suffer. May I tell you this? You are not exempt from suffering simply because of your service. And then sometimes we think that we are exempt from suffering because of our stature. I'm not very important to God. God really doesn't think I'm that important. God doesn't really love me or I would not be suffering. If I just had greater stature in his service, then I wouldn't suffer. Now, there was a time when Peter was a complete jerk. Can I get an amen on that? He was a complete jerk, but not now. There was a time when he denied Jesus, but not now. He is preaching without fear. He is preaching courageously, knowing that at any time he could lose his life. There is no one more sincere. There is no one more involved in service. There is no one that has greater stature in the kingdom of God right now than Peter. And guess what? He's in prison being guarded by 16 soldiers, and they're going to cut his head off. But God's in control. Even when I 
suffer. Here's the second point I want you to see. God is in control even at midnight. God is in control even at midnight. Look, please, at verses 6 through 10. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, now if I'm reading the text correctly, I believe that means they're going to lop off his head tomorrow morning. It's the night before his execution. All right? Now, what do we know about the Romans and their executions? They wanted people to suffer as much as possible. After all, they came up with a cross. They came up with crucifixion. They sat around and tried to devise means and methods so that people would suffer the most. And then they always wanted it public so that people would fear Rome. When Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was, what? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and kept the keepers. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. Okay, now let's get honest just for a moment. What are the odds that Peter is going to escape from prison? Come on, talk to me. What are the odds? Zero, right? He's chained to the wall and he's got 16 soldiers guarding him. So what are the odds he's going to be beheaded tomorrow morning? A hundred percent. Humanly speaking, there is absolutely no way out. It's midnight. It's done. It's over. It's finished. He's going to die a horribly painful death tomorrow morning. And so what's Peter doing? Excuse me? What? He's doing what? Brother, it doesn't say snoring. What translation are you using? (laughs) He is asleep. And he's sound asleep, which we'll see in just a moment. Listen, if I was going to be executed by the Romans tomorrow morning, I could take 16 bottles of Ambien and I would not be sleeping. Would you? Now, how sound asleep is he sleeping? And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. How many of you are startled by bright lights in the middle of the night? Just two nights ago, not last night, we are sound asleep. Terrible mistake, but I always put my phone beside the bed. Case of an emergency. It goes back to my pastor days, I, you know. But anyway, so the, the phone is there. And you know, at night when it's really, really dark, every time you get any kind of message, your phone goes, boop! And so I am lying there sound asleep, and all of a sudden, my wife screams, What happened? What happened? I said, what do you mean, what happened? I, I don't know. She said, there was a bright light right over beside your bed. I thought maybe the angels were coming to take you. 
Honey, I think it was my phone. Please go back to sleep. <laughs> Normally, a bright light would cause you to come awake and startle you. Not Peter. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side. <laughs> he is so sound asleep. Peter has to be smacked by the angel. Come on, Peter. Smack, 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 smack. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell from off his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself. Peter, would you get your clothes on? Do I have to do everything for you? Come on, Peter. Get your clothes on. Get your shoes on, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, cast thy garment about thee. It's cold outside, Peter. Come on, put your coat on. We're busting out of this place. And follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true. He must have thought it was a dream. Peter must have thought, wow, this is the craziest dream I have ever dreamed, but it sure is wonderful. It's going to be bad when I wake up, but it's so cool now. He thought it was a vision. And when they were past the first and the second ward, they come into the, came under the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street and forthwith, the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, it takes all this time for him to realize that he has just been sprung from prison by an angel of God. Now, I mentioned this this morning about the characters in the Bible. We make a terrible mistake when we forget that these people are real humans. They had the same emotions that we do. They had the same fear, the same anxieties that we have. They had a supernatural source, but they themselves were not supernatural. They were human. So, how in the world can a normal human being fall asleep knowing he's going to be killed tomorrow morning? Because he knew a secret. He knew God was in control. He knew that. And you know what? He knew he was not going to die tomorrow morning. He knew that. Say, well, Bob, how, how do you know that? Well, you don't need to turn over there now, but you might put it in your notes. In John chapter 21, verse 8, the risen Jesus told Peter, you will not die until you are an old man. He told him that. John 21, 8. You will not die until you're an old man. Well, guess what? He wasn't an old man yet. So get this. And I think if you miss almost everything else tonight, get this. So Peter, on one hand, had absolutely impossible circumstances. He's going to die. There is no human way he is going to escape. It's 100%. So you have the circumstances on this hand. And on this hand, he had the promise of Jesus. You're not going to die until you're an old man. And he wasn't old yet. Circumstances. Promises of God. Circumstances. 
promises of God. Folks, we are faced with that conundrum constantly. This afternoon, I did take a short nap, but I was thinking about the children of Israel who had been promised the promised land four centuries before they actually got there. And when they finally came through the wilderness and they came to the brink of the Jordan the first time, God told Moses, send 12 spies into the land. I want everybody to know that it's everything I said that it was. And the 12 spies went into the land and found that the land of Canaan was truly a land filled with milk and honey. It took two guys to carry one bunch of grapes from the area called Eskel. Remember that? It was everything that God told them. But there were these walled cities. There were these well-trained armies. And the children of Israel had been slaves for the last 400 years. They'd not been trained in battle. They had no weapons like the people of Canaan had. And then there were the giants. And they said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, yeah, the land is everything that God said it was. But, but there are giants in the land. They're so big, we look like grasshoppers. There are walled cities. There is no way we can take that land. And get this. The spies brought back an evil report. Check it out, numbers. They brought back an evil report of the land flowing with milk and honey. And so the children of Israel had, on one hand, circumstances that were impossible. On the other hand, they had the promises of God. It's your land. Go take it. I will be with you. I will conquer all of your enemies. Circumstances, promises of God. Circumstances, promises of God. Which did the children of Israel choose? Circumstances. You and I are faced with the same dilemma continuously. You will find yourself in impossible circumstances. And yet you have the promises of God. All things work together for good to them that love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. So God is in control even when I suffer. But God is in control even at midnight. When it's impossible and there is no way out. God is still in control. Here's the third point. God is in control even when my faith is weak. God is in control even when my faith is weak. I told you there'd be a quiz later, all right? It's quiz time. What are they doing down at the church? They're praying. They're having a prayer meeting. Now, how do you think they are praying? Oh, dear Lord, it's so bad. Herod hates us, the Jews hate us, and now they've taken Brother Peter. And Peter's going to die. And after Peter dies, we're all going to die. Oh, Lord, let Peter die with a smile on his face. You think that's how they were praying? 
Listen, the day of Pentecost was in the rearview mirror. I mean, the day of Pentecost had not been long ago. They had seen miracles. So here's how they're praying. I know how they were praying. They were praying, oh God. <laughs> Herod is mighty, but you are greater. Rome is mighty, but you are greater. The Jews are great, but you are greater. Deliver our brother. We know you can do the impossible. Oh God, deliver our brother Peter. We know you will. Don't you think that's how they were praying? Of course that's how they were praying. They were praying prayers of faith. Well, keep that in mind. And let's go to verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered praying. That's where the prayer meeting was. And as, I love this. Don't tell me the Bible does not have humor. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. Now get the picture. All right, you got to get the picture. Use your sanctified imagination. They're in the house and they're praying. Oh God, deliver Peter. We know you can. We know you'll deliver Peter. And then, and the chairman of the deacons, had to be the chairman of the deacons, says, Psst, Rhoda, Rhoda, we're praying here. Go see who's at the gate. Okay. And so Rhoda, bless her heart, she goes out to the gate. Now look at this. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. <laughs> and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness. Rhoda opened the door. She was so excited. She was so thrilled. She did not open the gate. When she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood at the gate. Hey, 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 I hate to interrupt the prayer meeting, but we don't need to pray anymore. God answered our prayer. Peter is at the gate. Peter has been delivered. Hallelujah. God has answered our prayers. And so how do they respond? The chairman of the deacon says to Rhoda, Rhoda, Dear girl, you are about three french fries short of a happy meal. Rhoda, you're at least a quart low. Rhoda, you know, your elevator just doesn't go to the top. Say, Bob, you're really exaggerating. Really? Verse 15. And they said unto her, you are nuts. Well, the King James says thou art mad, but you are nuts. They thought she was crazy. They didn't believe her. Don't you love their faith? Come on. Don't you love their faith? God has just answered their prayer. And how do they respond? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Huh? No, 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 no. You were mad. But Rhoda wouldn't shut up. Bless her heart. It says she constantly affirmed that it was so. And get this, get this. Then said they, it's his angel. He's gone. They've cut off his head. He's dead. And it's his angel at the door. 
Now, they weren't really good in their theology because people don't become angels when they die, but, you know, that's not here to there. It's his angel. So where's Peter? But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they said, Well, Peter, it's about time you showed up. We knew that you were going to be delivered. Is that what it says? They were astonished. Isn't it fascinating that we pray our prayers of faith and then when God answers, we go, I can't believe it. God actually answered our prayer. Well, of course he answered your prayers. He doesn't always answer the way we want him to. They were astonished. God is in control even when my faith is weak. You don't get much weaker in your faith than these people. I know scripture says without faith it is impossible to please him. That's scripture. That's Bible. But the same Bible tells me that if I have faith the size of a mustard seed. Three weeks ago I was preaching in a church and after the service, a gentleman came up to me and he had a little medallion and it had a tiny, tiny little mustard seed embedded in it. And I began carrying that in my pocket. If we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Aren't you glad that God does not have a faithometer in heaven? You know what I mean by that? A monitor, a measure of our faith. And when we pray, our faith moves the needle, you know. And it gets up to maybe mm, 40% and God says, uh-uh, I'm not answering till it gets to 70. And we grunt and groan, okay, God, I believe you. And we get to about 65% and God says, uh-uh, no, I'm not answering till it gets to 70. God's in control. Even when my faith is weak. Remember that young parent that said, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. God's in control. Even when I suffer. God's in control. Even at midnight. God's in control. Even when my faith is weak. And here's the last point. God is in control even when evil seems to prosper. God's in control even when evil seems to prosper. Verse 18. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. Uh, you think? What is going to happen to a soldier who allows King Herod's prime prisoner to escape well we find out verse 19 and when Herod had sought for him and found him not he examined the keepers commanded that they should be put to death and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and their abode now question what did those soldiers do wrong nothing is there anything they could have done 
to prohibit Peter from escaping. Absolutely nothing. In other words, they were completely, absolutely innocent. And they still died. This is another whole sermon. Innocent people often suffer when evil people are in control. Look at the scourge of abortion in America. Millions and millions of absolutely innocent unborn babies have died because evil people are in control on both sides of the political aisle. But God is in control. Verse 20, when and Herod was highly displeased with Amatiah and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Now that's a whole complex political thing and I'll allow your pastor to explain that next Sunday. <coughs> but look at verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. I don't know whether you've heard of Flavius Josephus, who was an historian who lived during the time of Jesus. And he wrote massive histories about the Jewish people. Well, there were several Herods during this time. But this particular Herod is dealt with in great detail in Josephus' history of the Jewish people. And he lived such an opulent lifestyle that Josephus says he had his tailors take actual threads of gold and actual threads of silver and weave it into the outer garment that he would wear when he would give a speech. And there was so much gold and silver that if he stood in the sun, you would almost be blinded by his apparel. That's how opulent he was. And he was probably wearing one of those garments right now. Upon a set day, Herod, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne <coughs> and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, it's the voice of God and not of a man. <coughs> Pardon me. It is the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, listen, let's get real realistic here. Peter has escaped from an impossible situation. He has escaped from being beheaded. Good for Peter. Yeah! What about the church? Are things better or worse for the church at Jerusalem since Peter's escape? A hundred times worse. Herod hated the church before. And now he has been publicly humiliated. You know that he had advertised when he was going to behead Peter, the head of the Christians. And now Peter has escaped. This unbelievably arrogant man has been publicly humiliated. And so he gives a speech and they declare, he's not a king, he's not a man, he's a god. So what do you think he is going to do with the church immediately? Search and destroy. Listen, when we entered Acts chapter 12, 
things were really, really, really bad for the church. Would you agree with that? Now they're even worse. They're far worse. Far, far, far worse. It is hard to imagine the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem being in a worse condition than they are in Acts chapter 12, verse 22. Are you with me on that? We all agree on that? It's worse than bad. Verse 23. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Verse 22. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. How long did it take God to turn that whole thing around? One verse. One verse. Verse 22, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. God is in control even when evil seems to prosper. America is in a terrible condition today. Can I get an amen on that? Evil men are prospering and evil women are prospering. Can I get an amen on that? I want you to know something. God's still in control. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And it gets even better. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Then you immediately go into Acts chapter 13. And what happens in the first four verses of Acts chapter 13? Immediately after, it looked like the church was dead, gone, finished, destroyed, wiped out. Within six verses in the Word of God, in chapter 13, you have the first missionaries sent out by a local church. The modern missionary movement begins in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. You with me on that? When did that missionary movement that began right here, when did it end? It hasn't. It continues today. <laughs> it continues today. Why? Because. Excuse me? What's that? Because God is in control. Number one, God is in control even. What's number one? Even when I suffer, God is in control even at midnight. God is in control even. And God is in control even when it seems that evil prospers. Leave here tonight praising God because we know whatever we face, God is in control. Father. 
I thank you, I praise you that you are sovereign God. You are sovereign God. And you are in control. I pray for the dear precious people tonight that are going through a difficult circumstance. I don't know what it is. Physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually. A problem in their family, a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter. A loved one dying with cancer. I don't know what they're facing, but you do. And I know this, whatever circumstance they are facing, you are in control. And somehow, someway, if we allow you to and if we surrender to you, you will get glory. And we'll praise you for that and thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for letting me be here this morning and tonight. Thank you, Pastor. And I did I sold I didn't bring many books, but we sold out this morning and I brought some more back if you want. And tonight I have an extra special. Joy's book that she wrote, and it really is a phenomenal book. It's 15. My book, because it's not as good, actually it's